Open your Bibles with me, please, to Ephesians chapter 5. We've come to the fifth chapter in Ephesians. And if you'll turn there, I would like to read another verse from another place in the Scriptures to get our attention before we look at the verses of that fifth chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, The heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things hath mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. The God of heaven will look unto you if you are of a poor and contrite spirit. There is no virtue in poverty. God has no love of those that are poor by their own choice and foolishness. There's no virtue in poverty. There is virtue in poverty of spirit in which you own yourself to have nothing worthy to bring before the God of heaven. And a contrite spirit is one that is broken and is willing to say, I am wrong before the God of heaven. And then that man trembles at the word of God because he wants to hear it, learn it, and obey it. And he realizes in the light of God's word that he falls far short, but he trembles before it. Are you trembling this morning because we're about to turn and you're already there to Ephesians chapter 5 and begin down through these verses? The Lord draws nigh to those that tremble at his word. It is not my job to entertain you with some pleasant sounding sermon this morning. It is my job to declare to you the words of God And the fact that they are coming from God should be enough to get your attention. And you should tremble before them. Maybe you've read Ephesians chapter 5 many times. There's still value in it for you. A brother has read, and another brother has mentioned in his prayer, about the wonderful promises in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, that if we will tremble before the Word of God and separate ourselves from the foolishness of this world, God will draw nigh to us, dwell with us, abide with us. He'll be our God, we'll be His people. There are seven conditions, there are seven promises. It is a fantastic passage. The average Christian only knows that passage for these words. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. They don't know the rest of it. Touch not the unclean things of this world. Come out from among them and be ye separate. And they haven't been taught the seven glorious promises. And they haven't been taught that verse 1 of the 7th chapter is the summary of that wonderful passage. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Because then the promises are ours. Ephesians chapter 5. We finished singing a moment ago, He leadeth me. And we said that, Lord, take my hand in Thine, so that I can follow Thee. 
And look at how we start. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. Amen. There's a therefore there because the apostle is continuing to draw a conclusion from all God has done for us in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. But there's a tighter connection in that. The tight connection with verse 1 is with the last two verses of chapter 4 and the first two verses of chapter 5. They all go together. Let me read the four of them together to you for you to understand that to follow God and to be most like Him is to love your brother, to love your neighbor. Everyone that God brings across your path in your ordinary life, you are to love, and it is that that shows you are a child of God more than any other single thing. It is not your faith. The devils believe and tremble. It is not your giving. Lots of wicked men give large amounts for the praise of men. But it is the most difficult thing to love our brothers. And to love our neighbors. So listen to these words. The last two verses of chapter 4, the first two verses of chapter 5. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savour. Those four verses go together telling us that following God as dear children is putting away bitterness, wrath, and anger, of verse 31, putting on love toward one another, forgiving them and being tender-hearted, not hard-hearted. There's no place for a hard heart in the religion of Jesus Christ because God is so tender-hearted toward us. And that's how we follow God as dear children. The children He has loved enough to adopt us and predestinate us to an eternal inheritance and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us. There's the standard. If... If every one of us would always say, how does God treat me? That would settle all problems, all disputes among men. If we would say, how does God treat me? I'm going to treat others that same way. Do you know how you would treat them? Just as this verse describes, as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice. Jesus Christ gave up things in order to love us. And for us to love others, we have to give up things. Sometimes we give up our feelings. We give up our time. We give up our money. We give up our revenge. We give up our anger because we're not going to get angry. We sacrifice ourselves for the sake of others as Jesus Christ did. That is to be a follower of God. In fact, it gets better than that. If you'll hold your hand there, I want you to look at Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Do you want to be a child of God today? Do you want to be a child of God 
today. There is a very simple thing that you can do. Matthew chapter 5, verse 45 says this, That ye may be, Matthew 5, 45, That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. Now this is a practical childhood. God eternally elected us and predestinated us to the adoption of children. Jesus Christ legally adopted us by paying the price for that adoption. The Holy Spirit regenerates us by actually giving us a nature of a son of God. But then we are practically the sons of God according to this verse. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. Well, I want to be the children. I want to be the child of my Father which is in heaven. Well, what does it say before this verse? It says, love your enemies. What does it say after this verse? It says, verse 46, if I love them which love me, what reward do I have? Don't the publicans the same? And if I only salute my brethren in verse 47, doesn't everybody else do that? That's proof of nothing. Can I love my enemies? Now, this enemy here is not an enemy of God. It's your enemy. Your enemy might be your wife. Your enemy might be your husband. Your enemy might be someone else in this church. It might be a neighbor that irritates you. Can you love them? This is being a child of God. And look at the explanation. God said, I do it. Why can't you do it? I send my rain and my sunshine on the evil and the good. I send rain and precious sunshine. Yesterday was absolutely gorgeous. That was the bluest sky, the brightest sun. And if you were to sit in it for a few minutes, and I had a wonderful time in it for a few minutes, reading my Bible and talking to the Lord, you can feel Him embracing you and kissing you. What do you think that sunshine is? It's the warmth of God loving me with a material blessing He gave me called sunshine. He says, I send that on my friends and my enemies. I send rain that nourishes the earth on both as well. If God can do it, why can't you do it? You say, you harp on this so much. Do you know why I harp on it? It is because that's what the Holy Spirit harps on in the New Testament. This is the number one measure of a child of God. This is how we show ourselves to be like God Himself. We love one another. We do not get angry. We do not get mad. We do not get upset. We do not get impatient. We bear along patiently. We're kind. We're tender-hearted. We forgive. We forbear. We do all those things because God does it toward us. If only you and I would always ask the question, how does God treat me? That answers every relationship, dilemma, and problem you have ever had. You would bask in peace and pleasure for your soul if you would ask and do that. That's Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Of course, I could take the second half of verse five, of verse 2 and preach to you a sermon about Jesus Christ giving Himself for us and offering in a sacrifice. But you already know that, and if I were to do that, you'd forget what I just told you. I want you to remember what I just told you. How does God treat me? How did Jesus Christ treat me? That's how I'm going to treat others. And you will have the lesson of the first two verses. Why belabor the point? Do you get it? It works in marriages. You want some marriage enhancement? Here's what it sounds like. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Are we going to run into that again? 
You mean, are we supposed to love like Christ loved and so forth? Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church. Does this principle apply to marriages? Absolutely it does. It applies to every relationship you have. How does God treat me? That's how I'm going to treat them. Praise the Lord. I love the simplicity of the gospel. And not only its simplicity, it's power. I am thankful that God does not pound me when I make some small transgression. I'm thankful that God does not hold it against me when I do the same transgression two or three times in a row. I'm thankful that He overlooks it all through Jesus Christ. That He forgives me. And that He's always trying to lead me back gently and kindly into the way of righteousness. That He loves me. That He forgives me instantly. Many times before I ask. And showers His blessings upon me. That's how we should treat others. Let's go. Verse 3. But, a whole new subject now comes up. And I'm going to read verses 3 down through 7. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you, as becometh saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. There's the separation that God has called us to in that seventh verse. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. We are not supposed to live the way the wicked live. We are to be different. And there are six sins listed in this context at which we have to deal with now in verses 3 through 7. Verses 1 and 2 were loving one another. Because that shows us to be the children of God. Now if you want to please God and look like a saint, here's how you become yourself as a saint. You get rid of these six things out of your life. Verse 3. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness. What are those three sins? Fornication is a broad sexual term meaning premarital sex, adultery, incest, and sodomy. All of those are acts of fornication. You say, prove it with the Bible. Okay. First Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1 tells us that a man having his father's wife, which is incest, is fornication. Jude chapter 1 tells us that the men of Sodom were given over to fornication. And we know what they were given over to because where do you think the name sodomy came from but from the activities of the men of Sodom? Fornication is a big word. Adultery is just a little word. Not that it's a little sin. It's a terrible sin. It's a heinous sin, as the Bible says. But it's a small category of sexual sins, but because it requires the involvement of a married person. Fornication doesn't require the involvement of a married person. Fornication's a big category. So when we read the word fornication, the Bible is dealing with sexual sins. You know, I ought to bring to you a statue of the goddess Diana. A couple good brothers mailed it to me yesterday. I'd seen it many times before, but I hadn't thought of it in light of today's chapter. But if you were to see a statue of 
the great goddess Diana. To show where their minds were, this great goddess has over 20 breasts hanging off her front. You can go look it up. Oh, it's not attractive. You're not going to be looking at anything that's going to stir any lust at all. It's just going to stir your repulsive spirit that men would worship such a stupid-looking creature. Paul had to deal with this subject, and so he dealt with it. He is dealing with the church, and he tells them all the great things God has done for them in chapters 1, 2, and 3. In chapter 4, he told them, you have a church for the purpose of building each other up in the most holy faith until you come together in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And you are to put off the old man and to put on the new man. Now, in case you didn't get that as to what the old man and the new man is, he's going to tell you some of those sins, and fornication is one of them. In our society... Fornication is called casual sex. It's called partying. It doesn't matter what you call it. In the law books of heaven and in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and His wholesome words, it's called fornication. And all uncleanness. What is all uncleanness? Do you think that's not bathing sometimes? You know, I've heard the expression, cleanliness is next to godliness. Well, that's only in somebody's mind who is really twisted. Because physical cleanliness doesn't have a thing to do with godliness. What is this uncleanness? It can't be ceremonial uncleanness under the law, because this is New Testament verse. Uncleanness is an even bigger sexual term than fornication. There are some things that you could not call fornication that involve sexual sins. For instance, pornography. When you open up and use the word uncleanness and you go look at it in the Old Testament and see how broad it is, you've got some other sins coming in now that don't involve intercourse. Fornication requires it. Pornography, foreplay, and so forth that goes short of the goal. All of it wrong in uncleanness. And so the apostle nails anybody down who thinks, well, because he didn't say, he didn't say, he just said fornication, I'm safe. So we have the apostle saying, but fornication and how much uncleanness? All uncleanness. He's going to get your mouth in the next verse. But right now it's acts. All uncleanness or covetousness. What is covetousness? Covetousness is wanting something God has not given you. And there's two ways you can measure whether you're covetous or not. It makes you discontent and frustrated with what you have. Ooh. That one hurts. I've never stolen to get something I didn't have, so I don't think I'm covetous. Oh, the Bible doesn't care whether you've stolen or not when it uses the word covetous. It just means, do you want it? Do you want it to the extent that it leaves you frustrated and discontent with what you do have? And does it lead you to think about compromising in some area of your life in order to get it? Here's how you can compromise. I really need a new truck. So I'm going to cut back on my giving for a year so that I can get that truck. You are covetous because you have let the desire for something that you don't have so affect you that you've compromised some other part of your life that God expects. I don't preach on giving. I'm just using that as an example. I don't preach on giving very much. But I'm using that as an example. I need this so bad I'm not going to save anymore. You've sinned. You're covetous. 
When you let the desire for something keep you from saving, which is the commandment of God, you are covetous. Do you know why I have to go into detail like this? Because everybody looks at the word covetous and says, well, I don't really think I'm guilty of that one. Oh, yes. Are you discontented about anything in your life? Why are you discontented since Jesus said you should be content with everything you have because I have said to you, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. If you have me, you've got everything. So why would you be discontent about anything in your life because you've got me? That's how the Lord looks at it. Now are you covetous? Oh, Lord, have mercy upon us. We are all covetous. Lord, forgive us. And I mean that. Have mercy upon us. That's what covetousness is. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, now you know exactly what the apostle is addressing. Let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. Those kind of sins should never be named among the people of God. To be named means that it's of common report that people know about it, that the reputation of someone or of some church is to condone and allow those sins. It can't be named among us. If someone is guilty of those sins and it's identifiable in a public way, out they go. We've practiced it in the past. We're going to practice it in the future. Paul told the church at Corinth what to do with the fornicator, didn't he? There's a whole chapter on it, 1 Corinthians 5. Put him out. Then in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, take him back in. Because he had cleared himself with his repentance. It can't be named among us. These sins should never be part of our lives. They should never be part of our church life. We cannot allow these things in our church. We can't allow them in our families. We can't allow them in our own lives. We must hate those three sins. And hating those sins becometh saints. It's beautifying. As becometh saints. When someone says that dress is very becoming on you, we mean that it beautifies you and makes you attractive. Do you know what's going to make us attractive in the sight of God and before this ugly world? We hate fornication, all uncleanness and covetousness. Lord, help us. The world puts up with it. So-called Christians today put up with it. It will happen. It happened in David's life. But what is the church going to do about it when it happens? We're not going to let it be named among us. It's going out. Verse 4. Well, before I read verse 4, I hope there's no self-righteous minds here. But let's just pretend that we have a little bit of a self-righteous heart. Can you pretend that okay? That maybe you have a little bit of self-righteousness? And you say, well, I ain't guilty of any of that garbage in verse 3. I'd never sin like that. Those are terrible things. Sexual sins? Disgusting. Covetousness? I'm happy just the way I am. Okay. Let's try verse 4 on for size. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. I love the Holy Spirit of God that sets men up by going after three sins that you might say you can escape, and then mentioning three more that you're not going to get away from in this foolish generation. The apostle lists three more sins to add to our three, neither filthiness. Now, filthiness here is filthy communication. And I love the Word of God. 
I know it's filthy communication for two reasons. Number one, in verse four, the sins are sins of speech. Because the antidote for them all is to give thanks. Okay, I know that. If I go read the fraternal twin to Ephesians, what book of the Bible is it? Colossians. If I go read Colossians and find the corresponding verse, what do you think I have over there? Filthy communication. Thank you, Lord. Do you, do you know how to study your Bibles? We compare spiritual things with spiritual. So we know exactly what the Lord's talking about. We've already had filthiness in actions in verse 3. Filthiness is moral impurity, especially sexual sins. That's in verse 3. Here it's filthy communication. And filthy communication are words and speech and language and jokes that excites the lust of men toward sexual sins or makes light of sexual sins. That's what filthiness is in, in Ephesians 5.4. Filthy communication. This does not mean that men with men cannot speak plainly about sexual matters as long as they're not doing anything to excite lust or be foolish or to make light of sins. This does not mean that because some prudish woman is squeamish about something being discussed where it should be discussed, that makes it filthy. She does not set the standard at all. She needs to get her little conscience educated so that she can read the Bible and not blush at half of its pages. That is not the measure of filthiness. Filthy communication has to do with making jokes and talking about sexual things that would excite another person's lust or give you some sort of gratification or make light of sins that God condemns. That's filthy communication. I will, to the best of my ability, keep our gospel car on the middle of the road. I want it on the crown of the asphalt and not in either ditch. I don't care what Sister Mary Elephant said from the convent. I care what God said. And I can read the Bible and see that he's rather plain about a number of things and even out of his preacher's mouths while they're preaching. And if you haven't figured that out yet, try the prophet Ezekiel. I don't want to spend any more time on that. Filthiness is telling jokes and talking in a lewd, in a lewd way that excites the lust of men and gives an indication that your heart is in the wrong place because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. So let's make sure that what comes out of our mouth is pure and good to the use of edifying. Nor foolish talking. That's prating and babbling to no end. That's just a whole lot of conversation without accomplishing anything. Joking around and just talking about nonsense. The Bible condemns it. I know that's hard to take because of the generation we live in. If we could go back and meet our great-great-grandparents, they did not sit around all the time joking about life. They did not sit around at night looking at sitcoms and bursting into laughter every 20 seconds on cue from some message board in a studio someplace. They're all insane idiots. They're hyenas on their way to hell. Life is serious. Wait till one of you is in in, in a bed with a little hose at your nose. Life is serious. Wait till we all stand before the Lord. You will get serious. I'm trying to get you serious in advance so that when we get there, the Lord will say, well done to all of us. You were sober during life. Do you know what words are used in the Bible about men? 
and women, we're to be grave and to be sober-minded. To be grave. I like the choice of words that the Holy Spirit selects. You know, when you're looking at a grave and you're dropping some friend or relative into it, it tends to make you sober, doesn't it? Well, that's the word grave. We're to be grave. We're to have gravity. That means to be serious about life. Foolish talking is out. And our whole society talks foolishly almost all the time. And it is so easy for us to fall back on that because it makes us comfortable because there's no edifying being done. There's no exhorting being done. No instruction being done. No warning being done. We can all degenerate to our common denominator. Foolishness. This is the word of the Lord. This is not Jonathan Crosby. This is the God of heaven. Tremble before his words. Have a poor and a contrite spirit right now and admit to yourself that you just joke and foolishly talk too much. You know what I feel like after reading this verse and studying it? And it's in my outline. my, My outline will tell you how I felt. Just like Isaiah did when he stood before the God of heaven in Isaiah chapter 6. And he said, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. We live in a generation of unclean lips. You don't have to tell a dirty joke. The cleanest joke you've ever told is just as sinful, and you're going to hell for it if Jesus Christ doesn't pay for it. Because life is not a joke. It doesn't matter whether it's clean or dirty. That's why dirty jokes are in the word filthiness. Clean jokes are in the word filthy, foolish talking. Foolish talking. You say, well, I'm not sure that foolish talking means things that you're saying. So the apostle adds jesting. Telling jokes. Speaking sarcastically. Implying one thing but meaning another thing. Life is too serious. Life is too short. We should be exhorting each other to live a holy life so that we can meet God because we're racing toward that appointment. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting. I remember hearing a preacher one time say, nor jesting, which is not convenient, meaning you can jest as long as it's convenient jesting. But there's a problem with that. Can anybody say the word that's the problem with that in this text? Bless you. Are. Is that a singular or a plural verb? That's a plural verb. That means it's not just applying to jesting. It means it's applying to jesting, foolish talking, and filthiness. If we're going to apply it the way he preached, then there's some filthiness that's convenient too, and we can use that. There's foolish talking that we can engage in as well. But when it says, which are not convenient, it means that all three are not convenient. And I love the words, not convenient. Let me tell you what the word not convenient means. It means the difficulty that two men have having sex with each other. You say, you are so disgusting in your word definitions. Go to Romans chapter 1 and read where you find the words about not being convenient. It's the only other place in your New Testament. I'm supposed to compare spiritual things with spiritual. Two men have trouble. They can't do it the missionary way. Are you all awake this morning? That's how inconvenient it is. And it's inconvenient to tell jokes. It's stupid. All it does is give you away 
as being an insane idiot. Life is too short and it's too serious. You can, listen, we started out this day and we're going to finish this day rejoicing in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. But rejoicing has never been caused by a joke. Hyenas laugh and fools cackle by jokes. But saints don't rejoice at jokes. Saints rejoice at being with the Lord's people, singing the Lord's songs, and hearing the Lord's word. That's what causes real joy. Which are not convenient. We'll say, you know, Americans should ask the question, and you should all be saying to me right now, if we can't tell filth, if we can't talk filthy language, communication, and if we can't talk foolishly, and if we can't jest, what in the world do we do with our mouths? Because that's what everybody uses them for. But rather giving of thanks. Isn't that wonderful? You want to say something? Give thanks. You know, the little woman that's not here this morning, because she's next door, does she know this verse? Can you ever get in a conversation with that creature and not not hear thanksgiving for something? I've tried. Do some of you try? Do you try to engage her for... I'm going to cut it off at 30 seconds because there's no way she can get a Thanksgiving in in 30 seconds. And so you talk to her for... Oh! And she hits you with about five or six things in 30 seconds. She's a gift. And if she's listening to this, did you set up... I'm in trouble. Well, some of... Do I have any bodyguards? She's a great example of being thankful. Do you know why she's in our church? God sent her to give us a reminder and an example of how to do it. And I hope that she's convicting to us. And I hope that we can all be more like her. I love every one of you other women. Please don't take offense. If you love one another, you are going to love the fact that she is a great example for us. When you surpass her, I will only talk about you from then on. But rather giving of thanks. What a replacement! Subject, always talking about how good the Lord is. How could you say anything yesterday without including, isn't the Lord good to give us this beautiful day? It was so beautiful. I I didn't know how to put it into language to Him. I was just thanking Him for everything that I could possibly think of and say, whatever I'm missing, I'm thankful for. I'm thankful for everything in my life. Because how could you be unthankful for anything yesterday? We have the Bible that tells us He's made us His children. We have the sunshine that tells us He's still faithful. You say, how do those two have to do with each other? Here's what they have to do with each other. God said, if you can stop the sun from shining so that my covenant of giving this earth a day and a night ends, then you can annul my covenant that you are my son and I have everlastingly saved you. So every time it comes up, do you know what it says to me? I'm a child of God. There's no way I can be lost. And that's what it ought to say to you. Verses 3 through 4 list six sins. Verse 5, For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. The three sins that are listed there are the three sins from verse 3. Can you see that? Verse 3 says fornication. Verse 5 uses the word whoremonger. Verse 3 uses the word uncleanness. Verse 5 uses the words unclean person. Verse 3 uses the sin covetousness. 
Verse 5 has a covetous man. Paul is going back, grabbing grabbing the three sins from verse 3 to keep his thoughts together and making an application. The reason we do not want these sins named once among us is because anyone with those sins as a pattern of life and without repenting from them gives the evidence of going to hell. Because verse 5 says, This ye know, I've taught you this. This you should understand, that whoremongers that engage in fornication and unclean persons who engage in all uncleanness or covetous men who engage in covetousness, they don't have any inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. That is an indication they are not children of God. That does not mean that some of God's saints don't commit some of those sins. David committed those sins. It's recorded in the Bible. It's recorded in detail in the Bible because we know that he was still God's man. We still know that he's in heaven. But what did David do that made all the difference in the world? It's a word that starts with R. He repented. repented. When people live that kind of lifestyle and are not convicted over it and they do not repent over it, then you have a much harder time. You know, then you need 2 Peter telling you that Lot was still a righteous man since we never read about any repentance in the man's life. There's another level of exceptions, but brethren, the exceptions do not nullify the rule. Do you know what the rule is? Fornicators, unclean persons, and covetous persons are going to hell. They have no inheritance. They were not predestinated to an eternal inheritance, as chapter 1 told us. Because of that, we don't want those sins near us. It says something else in the middle of this verse. It says, who is an idolater? It doesn't say who are idolaters. So what is is? Is that a singular or a plural verb? Singular. So it's talking about what sin? Covetousness. Are you kidding? Why would God say that just being covetous, that means being discontented with your life, makes you an idolater? Because something is more important to you than Jesus Christ saying, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. You have set something up above the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me... Oh, I need you to see it. Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. I am attempting to preach through Ephesians without turning you too many times because it takes so much time. Can you hear? You know what that sound means? It means, is, is, is Hebrews in the Old or the New Testament? Where in the New Testament is it? It takes time, but I want you to see these verses. This is so good. You know the little short verse that says, but godliness with content is great gain. A successful life, a a successful life is living a godly life and being content with the things God gives you. Godliness plus contentment equals great gain. Here's another verse. Look at verse 5. Let your conversation, that's your lifestyle, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Do you you see that verse and the power of it? The basis of a contented life is you've got God. You have the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing else should matter. What if you had a dry morsel every day of your life? What's a dry morsel in our terminology? Red. Saltines, right? 
saltines, and herbs. What if you could only afford a salad, a little cheap salad and some crackers, but you had the Lord? Are you feasting? You should be feasting. What if you're in a tent, and if you touch it, the water comes running through, but you have the Lord? It Listen, if, if your happiness depends on what you have, you have serious problems. Because if you've got the Lord, it shouldn't matter what you have, or what you do not have, or what you have and what you lose. Back to Ephesians chapter 5. Don't ever forget that verse, Hebrews 13, 5. The greatest lover in the history of the world, and I'm speaking reverently about the Lord Jesus Christ, the King I represent. He, he is willing to take you into the secret of His pavilion in the middle of the battlefield of an, innumerable, an innumerable host of angels, and you want to complain because you don't have a better truck? You are, are an idolater. Why don't I help you find a little brass Buddha and you can put it up in your backyard and bow down to it and light candles in front of it? You are an idolater if anything makes you discontent. Along comes a little woman and says, I'm discontented with my husband. He's just not what I thought he was going to be. He's just not what I wish I had. What in the world are you talking about? Jesus Christ said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Who cares what your husband does? You have the greatest husband in the universe, and he will never forsake you, and he is the perfect man. You say, why are you connecting those two things together? Here's why. Because Hebrews 13.4 said this. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Let your conversation be without covetousness. Whoa. You mean there's a connection there? Yes, there's a connection there. What's the first thing that God condemns men for coveting? Another man's truck? Another man's ox? Or another man's wife? <clears throat> the cure for marriage discontentment is to find your relationship with the Lord. Any person that has a relationship with the Lord is never discontent in their marriage. Because it doesn't really matter. Of course, they'd like it better. And they trust the Lord for that. But whenever they feel a little lonely because their marital spouse is not all that they wish he was or wish she was, they've got the Lord. And when they've got the Lord and they're walking with Him, that's good enough. It's more than good enough. That's why you're an idolater if you're covetous. To be covetous is to be discontented with what you have or to start thinking about how you can get what you don't have by compromising righteousness somewhere in your life. So, is everyone super happy with everything you have? Your husband, your wife, your house, your car, your truck, your yard? Are you content? You have won the battle of life. The whole world out there is on a treadmill. And guess what? The devil keeps walking by while they're on the treadmill. They're running as fast as they can. And the devil comes by and pushes that up arrow every now and then to make you run a little bit faster to get the things your neighbor has or to get the things that stupid television tells you you need to have to be happy or telling you to get the things that your little foolish profane heart says you need to be happy. 
And then you go out in this world and every man's got a face underdressed women and look at them in public, which we didn't have to in the past. Remember, I've told you in the past what you did in the world was to go out and look at the back end of an ox while you were plowing a field and it didn't bring much in the way of lust. Lord, help us. We're we're idolaters if we are ever discontented with our lives because we have you. Let no man deceive you with vain words. I've just told you the truth from verses 3, 4, and 5. But men will try to deceive you with vain words. They'll say those sins that are listed there aren't all that bad. You're too extreme. No, I'm not extreme. And you wait till you meet my master. You wait till you meet my king. You'll think that I was too easy. I promise you. I promise you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because I cannot give you the impression of what's going to happen when you face the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11 tells me that the heaven and the earth will flee away from the face of Him that sits on His throne. Paul said, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And I'm trying to persuade you right now. There is terror coming if you don't live a righteous life. God loves righteousness and He hates iniquity. But there are men that will try to deceive you with vain words. And that's why I started out this morning about the seeker-sensitive preachers in this country who want to poo-poo all this stuff. All they want to tell you this morning is seven rules to get ahead on the job. Then next Sunday it's seven rules to get ahead with your automobile. Garbage. Go listen to any of them. They don't want to name sin and can crush it. They don't want to promise that they're going to exclude such sinners out of their church because the numbers of their church would collapse. They have to keep that house built on cards in the air by speaking smooth things to it, as Isaiah 30 and verse 10 says. Let no man deceive you with vain words. Here are some vain words. I'm a libertarian. I'm a libertarian. What you're talking about up there, that ain't no crime. If I commit fornication or whatever you call fornication, I call it casual sex. If it's by mutual consent, no one gets hurt. It's a victimless crime. It's only a crime sometimes because of people like you with your old-fashioned morality. I'm a libertarian. No one got hurt. No one gets hurt when she's willing and I'm willing and we have a little sex. What in the world can be wrong with that? Now listen, if you ever meet a sharp libertarian, they will put you down unless you can remember just one little argument. Now Joseph wasn't a libertarian, but Mrs. Potiphar was. Mrs. Potiphar was a libertarian. She said to Joseph, I ain't getting enough from my husband. And listen, if we can both agree there's no harm done, what did Joseph say? How can I sin against God? When they say there's no victim, it's a victimless crime, I'll tell you who the victim is. It's the God in heaven. And there's a whole lot more victims, but the world doesn't see that because they're blinded. When fornication takes place and the sexual order of God's Word is overthrown, it will destroy society. But they can't see that. But I want to keep keep before your minds. They can say all that they want to. Do you know what I mean by libertarians? You know, they put presidential candidate, what they mean is as long as you're not hurting the person or the property rights of anyone else, you should be able to do anything you want to. They would legalize prostitution. But if we legalize prostitution in this country, who are we going up against? The God of heaven. 
say, well, if a prostitute wants to make money that way and a man wants to pay money that way by going to a prostitute, shouldn't they be allowed to do so? And if we were to govern it, then we could keep sexually transmitted diseases under control. That's as high as their thoughts go, like two dogs. But what does the Bible say? The Bible condemns that. So God's the victim. It is wrong. God said it was wrong. Because, and God knows best for us on this earth. Look at what it says in the Bible. Let no man deceive you with vain words. So I am fighting all those men that use vain words to deceive you that those six sins are not all that bad. Listen, if I was to be covered just the way you're describing, wanting what I ain't got is just godly ambition. Contentment is for losers. Those are vain words from a deceiver. Listen, brethren, we all stand together on this, don't we? We choose to be content with what God gives us, but when we report to a job in the morning and we are told to do something, we do it with our might because the same God that said to be content also said, do it with your might. And He also said, the diligent hand shall be made fat. He also said that a man that is industrious shall not stand before mean men. That's average men. He will be Cream rises to the top, and that's a biblical precept. We don't do those things just to get to the top, and we don't do those things to have more things at home. We do it because the Bible tells us that working on the job, we are bringing honor and glory to our Master. Ah, right. oh, shucks. If you can't ever laugh, life is boring. Let me tell you the four sins in that sentence that are going to send that person to hell. Ah, oh, that's a scorner. He's going to hell. Shucks. He's swearing. By speaking of the husks of corn, I've, what, what, what are shucks come from? Speak Some foolish word that he's using to add weight to his words, so he's sinning by swearing. If you can't ever laugh, life is boring. Well, try that when you're in the presence of God. See if it's boring in the presence of God. Wait till you stand before Him. Do you know what Job said when Job was defending himself? He said that he was so sober in his overall character. This is Job 29. I love the verse. Job 29, Job said, if I laughed, if I was ever feeling so good some morning that I I just rejoiced, they didn't believe it. They didn't believe it because it was so unusual for him. And he raises that to prove his righteousness, that life was serious to him. If I took you to Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, with which I will open the second service, unless the Lord changes my mind, If I took you there, does it tell old men to be sober? Does it tell old women, young women, young men? Wow. What's the one thing God cares about young men? Exhort to be sober-minded. Who, as a category, by sex and age, engages in the most filthy talking, the most foolish talking, and the most jesting? Young men. The Lord has a warning for young men. And I'm supposed to carry it to you. Young men exhort to be sober-minded. Let no man deceive you with vain words. I didn't mean any harm by jesting and joking around. I was just trying to have some good, clean fun. Well, there's more to life than your good, clean fun. You're You're such a lightweight. You have nothing in your head and nothing in your heart if you want to tell jokes to make people grin and cackle. 
why don't we talk about the Lord and the things of heaven and the things of righteousness and the things of thanksgiving instead? For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Why is God going to judge this world? For six reasons, and those six reasons were given in the context. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. Let's blow all that stuff out of our lives and live holy lives. You know, how can you say you stand against fornication when you watch television all the time? Television is selling fornication to you on every program, one, one way or another. Almost every program. When I say every program, you understand that I'm, I'm generalizing about the effect of Hollywood. Hollywood is selling you fornication, uncleanness, covetousness all the time. You've got to be very careful with that. That's the devil's pulpit in your home. How much do you let him preach in comparison to how much you listen to this pulpit? Be not ye therefore partakers with them. You say, how do you get television out of that verse? Because I get it out of this verse. Romans chapter 1 and verse 32. Who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. There's two ways that you can line yourself up with the sodomites of this world. You can do the same things they do, and you can get pleasure out of what they do by watching it on television or befriending them. Verse 8, For ye were sometimes darkness. You may have used to live that way, but no more. But now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Ye were sometimes darkness. Darkness in the Bible is a metaphor for describing ignorance, sin, the devil, hell. In fact, what is hell described like? The mist of the blackness of darkness forever. That's dark. The mist of blackness of darkness forever. Darkness in the Bible describes sin, the devil, hell, ignorance, blindness of heart, clouded understanding, unable to see or know, tripping over things. That's darkness. We were sometimes darkness. We sinned, we followed the devil, and we did his foolish things. But now we're light in the Lord. What is light in the Bible? Holiness, God, heaven, righteousness, morality, godliness, all those good things that God dispenses when He's around, when His presence is in a life. We were sometimes darkness, but now we're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Let's live like it. For the fruit of the Spirit, and that's God within us, is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Everything that we do, everything that we say, should be based in goodness and righteousness and truth. Because that's what the Spirit of God bears in our lives. Everything that the Spirit of God does is in one of those three things. If you've got something in your life that doesn't match up with verse 9, then it shouldn't be in your life. Verse 10, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. Let us demonstrate what is an acceptable lifestyle by obeying God. That's what that means. Not means it does not mean that we have to go around checking things out until we find what is acceptable to the Lord. The word proving here means to demonstrate it to the world by living it. We know what's pleasing the Lord because the previous verse just told us. It said in verse 9, the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. And if we do those things as children of light, then we prove or demonstrate to the whole world and anyone watching the acceptable will of God in our lives. And that's what we want to do. We want the world to see proper families, proper marriages, a proper church, 
proper workers on the job, proper masters on the job, the proper use of money, the proper training of children. We can show all those things to the world. I wish the world, whenever it saw us, would recognize those must be Christians because look at the way they're treating each other. Look at the composure they have. They don't get upset. Look at the mercy they have. Look at the relationships they keep. Then we would prove what is acceptable to the Lord. We demonstrate it to the world. Verse 11, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. The fruit... The works of darkness does have fruit, but it's wicked fruit. It's unfruitful in ever doing anything good or right. We were told to bear the fruit of the Spirit in verse 9. In verse 11, we're told to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. We are not to try to get along with sinners of the world. We're not to try to get along with sinners in the church of Jesus Christ. They're to go out. We're to reprove them by our lives and by our words, When the occasion calls for it, the Lord knows we can't completely separate ourselves from sinners or we'd have to leave the world. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10. He he knows that. But we need to take a stand for righteousness and not cave in. We need to live separate. No, I'm not going there. No, I will not do that. That is wrong. Are you going to go to the... No, I'm not going to it. That's wrong. I can't do it. I won't do it. And be able to defend ourselves with the Word of God have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. We do not believe in the ecumenical movement. We do not believe in associating ourselves together with sinners or compromisers, whether it's a church fellowship, a church association, a denomination, whether it's Promise Keepers, Bill Gothard, or any other amalgamation of all sorts of different sects and heretics into one body. I don't care how good it sounds when 15,000 Promise Keepers in a coliseum sing Amazing Grace. That has nothing to do with it. I don't want to sing Amazing Grace with Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, and Catholics being the three people around me. Unacceptable to the Lord. Come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord. Jesus Christ separated Himself from the most conservative religious sect of His day. Who were they? The Pharisees. He separated Himself from the most liberal sect of His day. Who were they? The Sadducees. He separated Himself from all the Bible scholars of His day. Who were they? The scribes. He separated Himself from all the interpreters and teachers of the Word of God. Who were they? The lawyers. He separated Himself from all those that thought that godliness was next to being an Israelite, like Americans think that Christianity goes with being an American. And what were they called? The Herodians. He separated from all of them. We don't like being different, but we're going to be different for the Lord's sake. And if the rest of the world wants to go to hell by compromising, we cannot. Because Ephesians 5.11 tells us we can't do it. Verse 12, not, For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. Verse 11 told us not to have fellowship with the wicked people of this world. And verse 12 makes the point by saying, it's a shame even to talk about the things that they do. Verse 13, But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. How do we reprove those around us? We live and walk as children of light. We're gentle. We're forgiving. We're forbearing. We're loving. We're patient. We're long-suffering. We're temperate. We have love in our lives. We have peace in our lives. We have joy in our lives. If you walk with the fruit of the Spirit, you're going to reprove the world just by your life. You're going to irritate them just by living. Why is he happy again? Then they'll ask a reason of the hope that is within you. You say, I've never been asked. You ain't got no hope. 
If you are full of hope, you'll eventually be asked. My favorite verse of the whole chapter, and here I am running out of time. I'm used to that. Verse 14, Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Are you falling a little bit asleep? Are you a little bit dead? Are you starting to compromise with the world a little bit? Are you falling into their darkness? Wake up! Get up! Awake, thou that sleepest! Arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Is there not enough light in your life? Is there not very much of the Holy Spirit in your life? Verse 9, are you not really reproving those around you? Are you not really demonstrating and proving the acceptable will of God? It's because there's not enough light of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life because you have quenched His Holy Spirit by your compromising life with the world. Awake! Get out of the sleep! And this is the message. And this is why verse 14 is the most important verse to me. I'll not spend the most time on it. I've already said what needs to be said. Wake up! We had read to us this morning already 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 5-11. through We who are of the day shouldn't be asleep. They of the night do the sleeping. We have got to be awake. This has nothing to do with being born again. You would not believe. I'll mail, I'll mail it to anybody who asks me. You would not believe how commentators do not understand the Bible. The best, the best, and most popular and most conservative commentators, and I wouldn't read anything written in the 20th century, do not understand the 14th verse. They think that the 14th verse is telling you how to get born again. Can you believe that? Lord have mercy! When, when the most conservative men who have written commentators in the, commentaries in the Bible think that verse 14 is telling you how to be born again, that it is your part in arising from the dead and awaking from the, the soul sleep of being dead in trespasses and sins. I'll tell you, John Gill, our Baptist brother from London, England of 300 years ago, he understood. But those Presbyterians like Al Barnes and Matthew Poole and Matthew Henry, they don't understand at all. Not at all. They're such sacramentalists. They think he, Ephesians 5.14 is talking about getting born again. It's your part. What it's talking about are to the Ephesian saints that are already born again because chapter 2 came before chapter 5 and chapter 2 said they were born again already and chapter 5 is telling them that in a practical way we tend to fall asleep sometimes. Does anybody know about falling asleep? Do you get a little dull? Do you get a little drowsy spiritually? Do, do you? Do you? Have you ever said to yourselves, I, feel, I just feel dead. I, I talk a lot to myself. But do you ever say, I just feel dead. I just feel dull. I just feel cold. I just feel sleepy. So what is the answer? Here in the middle of a context of telling us to separate from the world and live holy lives, awake! Rise from the dead. Get out of the doldrums. Shake yourself. Wake up! There's a spiritual life to live. We've got to separate from this world. If I've talked foolishly before, Lord, no more. If I've jested before, Lord, no more. I'm going to walk as a child of light in this world. That's verse 14. Verse 15, See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Our purpose is to demonstrate the will of God. We want to prove to the world what the will of God is in our lives. Well, we've got to be circumspect in order to do that. Circum. What does the word circum mean? If I make a circumnavigation of the whole world, how far do I travel? 
All the way around. Circum means all the way around. Spection means to look at it very closely. Circumspection means to look at it very closely all the way around. That's 360 degrees. In everything we do, 360 degrees. Do you know what most people do? They underlook and overreact. They underlook at a situation by looking at two degrees. Instead of getting all 360, they underlook and they overreact. Do you know what God teaches us to do? Overlook and underreact. How do you overlook? You look at everything and you judge a righteous judgment. Jesus said in John 7.24, oh, this whole verse deserves a whole sermon, but we can't do that. It's not my choice right now. I want to get to the whole Testament before I die. If he, don't, that's not funny. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. We want to look at every angle and judge a righteous judgment because Jesus said, judge not by the appearance. When you take a first glance at something, you get an appearance. And if you, if you make a judgment by your first appearance, you're a fool. That's what the verse says. Don't be unwise, but be wise, but be wise. Don't be a fool, be wise. When you get that first impression, don't make a judgment because you haven't looked at anything yet. You don't have all the evidence in. The jury's making a decision without getting the whole testimony. You need to turn around and look at all angles, then make a judgment. Jesus said, judge not by the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. John 7, 24. And that's what it means to be a wise man versus a fool. Fools underlook and overreact. Wise men overlook. I like the, here's the word. Overlook means to look at all 360, but overlook means to let a lot of things go. You know what overlook means. Because a righteous man who forbears situations overlooks things that would otherwise offend him. Overlooks and underreacts. And that's how you walk circumspectly by looking at everything because we want to know the will of God for our lives so that we can live it. Verse 16, redeeming the time because the days are evil. We've got to buy back the time. Everything in your life you should examine very closely all the way around. Do you need it? Is it helpful to you? Is it helping you? Is it making you a better Christian? If it's not, chuck it. Hit the silver lever and get rid of it. Get rid of it. That's what it means. That's how you redeem time. There's only 1,440 minutes in a day, but you can buy those minutes back by trading in some of the things that you do that waste those minutes. Because the days are evil. And if they were evil in Paul's day, they're more evil in ours because Paul said, this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. We are in them. So we've got to buy back our time. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Don't be foolish, but know what the will of the Lord is. And that, that, me, that requires an inspection of all 360 degrees based on the Word of God of everything you're doing in your life. Examine your life to make sure that you are living a life pleasing to Him. Don't be drunk with wine. That isn't how children of light live. It's okay to drink wine. I'm not going to deal with that subject now. I've dealt with it before. I'll deal with it in the future. And we can deal with it in private. But it just says a child of light doesn't get drunk. Drunkenness is the excessive use of wine. The appropriate, moderate use of wine is a wonderful thing. God blesses it. God commends it. And God created wine to be drunk in its alcoholic state in order to give you that relaxed, cheerful feeling in your heart. That's exactly what the Bible says. 
The Bible says that God made bread to make strong the heart of man, and He made wine to make glad the heart of man. They're both in Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15 together. And He gave you oil to eat in your diet so that your face will shine and not dry up. Those three things will work and make you a happier person. But an excessive use of wine that would lead to drunkenness, children of light don't do it. Verse 19, I mean, verse 18 still, children of light want to be filled with the Spirit. Not filled with wine, which would cause you to be drunk. If you filled yourself up on wine, you would get drunk. There is something you're allowed to fill yourself up on. That's the Holy Spirit of God. I heard some amens this morning when Galatians 5.23 was read, which said, against such there is no law. You can have as much love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance as you want. Are you excited? That sounds like the Garden of Eden. Thou mayest freely eat of every tree. Just stay away from that one. Well, why don't we get excited about those trees and why are we looking at that one? Love, joy, peace. You can have as much of that as you want. Get filled with it. I'd love to meet the person full. Do we know anybody? Can we, can we all be that? Filled with the Spirit. Verse 19, what do you do if you're filled with the Spirit? Yes. You get excited and you want to sing. What do you want to sing? What Rock 101 is booming out through your eight speakers? Huh? Some country idiots in boots and jeans? What do you want to sing? Country idiots, I was very kind to them. If you combined all their brains together you'd still be at room temperature. Have you ever listened to their lyrics? If one, The first one wrote a song and all the rest just copied it. All about drunkenness and adultery. That's all they know how to sing about. They don't know anything about real love. So why would you want to sing any of that stuff? What do you want to sing? It tells us what we should want to sing. And we should do it to ourselves and we should enjoy getting in here and lifting up the roof by singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It doesn't say a thing about playing. It says the melody that should be created by our singing comes from our heart. It doesn't come from a box on this side called an organ and a box on this side that's called a piano. If your church was opposite, I'm sorry, but you weren't in a church that didn't have both. The average person in here has come from a church that had both of those boxes that don't have any life in them, and that's where the melody was created. And the Bible tells us the melody ought to come from this thing right here. It ought to flow out of the joy that I have because God loves me. And I'm walking as a dear child of His and a child of light in this world. He's saved me from this world. He's delivered me from the wrath to come. And we ought to shout His praise through song. So it says, speaking to yourselves. A piano can't speak and an organ can't speak. It can just make a bunch of noise. Speaking. That requires the formation of words because we're communicating intelligent thought. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing. Not playing, singing and making melody on the piano. No, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. We sing to the Lord because we're full of the Spirit and the Spirit wants to direct all of our worship toward God. We enunciate and formulate words, meaningful words, from the songs that we sing. We have three sources for our words. We sing psalms. What's a psalm? It's a piece of poetry in Hebrew that David wrote. What's a hymn? A hymn is a song that directs praise to God, and most hymns are in the second person where we are addressing God Himself. A third song is a spiritual song. That's about the Christian life. That's why we have You know, people come into our church and say, wow, these people really like to sing. They've got three hymnals. Well, the little black one's a psalter. The Scottish psalter of 1650. That helps us sing the psalms. Psalms. 
The big red book has more hymns in it. And so we have the big red book because it's got hymns. So we can keep that part of the verse. We have the burgundy book because it's full of spiritual songs and doesn't have very many hymns. It has songs about the Christian life. So we all three books because we're trying to do Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 19. It's not because we have extra money and we make up for getting rid of two instruments with two more hymnals. That's why we have those three hymnals. Right there is the verse. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Singing requires the melody to come to your throat and out your lips. But the melody starts in your heart. But we're speaking words and we're speaking them to one another. When we're singing those songs, don't you get excited at hearing a whole congregation with rousing voice and joyful hearts singing great words about the God that we worship and the Savior that He sent to die for us? Verse 20, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Giving thanks. Is that being thankful? It's giving thanks. And I I have to make that distinction. If I were to pass out a piece of paper and ask all of you, are you thankful as a Christian? You'd probably all write me back and say yes. But then if I wrote out and said, "How how many of you in the last week have used ten different occasions to give thanks to somebody for something God has done for you, I would get mostly back no's. So you haven't been giving thanks. It's not enough to be thankful. God wants it coming out. You say, well, I'm, I've just got it locked up inside of me, but there's so much it's ready to blow a gasket. You wouldn't believe how thankful I am. I'm, I've got so much that the doctor, when he takes my blood pressure, he wonders why it's so high. Let some of it out. Let's move it out. We want to save your health. And we want to be blessed. Because it's a blessing to hear somebody give thanks. That's what that... If you are full of the Spirit of God, people always... How do I know if I'm full of Spirit? Am I full of Spirit? Do I even know the Spirit of God? Well, here's some explanations for it. You're going to want to sing and you're going to love our song service. Number two, you're going to want to give thanks. Giving thanks. How often? Always. Giving thanks for what? What does it say? For all things. Giving thanks always for all things to whom? God and the Father. How? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ because He's the greatest gift God has ever given us. And He is the mediator and the high priest by which our thanksgiving gets back to God. He brings forth before the Lord and scatters those rose petals before the throne of God and says... Forget my little analogy. Go read Revelation. You can find smoke and incense and other things there. The Lord Jesus Christ brings as our high priest the sacrifices that we offer through our lips. That's what that verse means in entirety. Giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's the third thing you're going to do if you're full of the Spirit? Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. God is going to cause you to fulfill all of the relationships that you have with other people in this life. God and His fear in your life is going to cause you to get along with others. Singing, giving thanks, getting along. You are full of the Spirit. Try it sometime. I gave you a little quiz yesterday to see how well you're getting along with others and how much you care about others. Let's fulfill these verses. Let's walk as children of light. Let's be followers of God as dear children. Let's awake from our sleep and arise from the dead and go out of here this day 
fully alert, fully alive, fully quickened as David prayed ten times in Psalm 119 to live like the children of God. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.